0: You're listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.
1: We are gonna have uh, some additional people trickling in, but we wanna get started because we have uh, an incredible Uh, show for you today, and uh, we have uh, a good number of people who are tuning in online as well, so hello to all of them. Uh, My name is Alex Thier, and I am the new Executive Director here at ODI, um, and I have an admission to make. uh, Is that when I was young, at some point, I think I actually cried reading the UN Charter. Um, seeing the ideals of humanity all brought together in this document and the aspirations, the incredible aspirations that were expressed after one of the, if not the worst, times in human history is is really uh, incredible. Um, And shortly after that, I rushed off into the sound of gunfire and went to work for the United Nations in the field during a a civil war. Um, And... We're convening this discussion today because I think then, uh, at its founding uh, as now, uh, the UN, uh, to paraphrase uh, Winston Churchill, uh, is the worst possible uh, institution or example, except for all of the others' uh, possibilities. Um, The UN um, does so many important things around the world Um, And as I think we all know and are bracing for more, uh, we have entered deeply uncertain times uh, in the international environment, perhaps as uncertain as they have been since uh, Churchill himself. And so we have gathered together a really terrific set of speakers who know an awful lot um, about the United Nations and politics, Um, to talk about what the new Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, can and should select as his priorities in order to make a difference. So I'm going to ask each of them uh, a couple of questions, um, and then we will have an opportunity uh, for some of you to ask questions as well. Uh, For those of you who are watching online, um, I have a device in front of me which is uh, going to produce those questions magically. Um, so please send them in and let me know where you're writing in from as well. Um, and if you really like what you hear, or really don't like what you hear, uh, we have a hashtag for this event, uh, which is hashtag UNSECGEN. I think it's supposed to be on a screen somewhere, right there, um, and uh, ask that you use it. Um, and I'm told that if we trend on Twitter in London, uh, President Trump is not going to cut funding for the United Nations. Um, uh, so with that, with that alternative fact, let me uh, turn to our speakers. Um, uh, first, we have uh, I'm delighted, uh, Lord Purvis, Jeremy Purvis of Tweed. Um, Who is a liberal Democrat member of the House of Lords and International Relations Committee and I'll come back to you in a second Um, And then to the far right over here certainly not politically uh, But just spatially Achim Steiner um, Who has just finished a remarkable decade of leading the United Nations environment program probably through its most important era ever um, And is now the uh, director of the Oxford Martin School Um, We have um, uh, online, uh, joining from Video Link in New Delhi, um, I don't know uh, if, oh, yeah, we're looking, at, we're looking at you right now, is Orvashi uh, Aneja, who is an associate professor and executive director at the Center for Global Governance and Policy in the Jindal School of International Affairs. Um, and finally, my good friend and colleague, Christina Bennett, who heads the remarkable humanitarian policy group uh, effort here at ODI. Uh, So um, I'm going to start with you, Jeremy, because uh, your committee has uh, fairly recently produced a report that speaks remarkably to what we're talking about, the UK and the UN priorities for the new Secretary General. Now, I won't pretend that you settled on one, so I'm going to ask you the hard effort um, of reflecting on what you
2: heard and what do you really think his top priorities should be? Um, Alex, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's a a real uh, pleasure. Uh, And to thank uh, the ODI for contributing to our inquiry report. The the evidence from the the ODI and the whole team uh, was really powerful and helped us in our inquiry. So thank you very much. You said in your formative years as a young man, you cried when you read the UN Charter. As a Liberal Democrat, I did the same when I read the Liberal Democrat Manifesto. Um, (laughs) For perhaps different reasons. But, um, (coughs) But... I will return to language, uh, because it was something that uh, we did discuss within the committee, but um, I wanted to highlight just the, perhaps the very first conclusion or recommendation that the committee made, and we're, we're a relatively new committee. The House of Lords, as the upper house, has never had a, a Foreign Affairs Committee before, uh, and the International Relations Committee is in its first session, so this, we are to some extent breaking new ground. And our very first inquiry was a, a relatively short inquiry, uh, taking um, advantage, to some extent, of the, what was then the impending uh, appointment of the new Secretary General. So part of our work was also considering the process around which the Secretary General was appointed, and that may come up later in some of the discussion, because we, we found that very interesting and, and very helpful. But when we started our inquiry, We didn't have a new secretary general and we didn't have a new president. I think it's fair to say that there's consensus around our committee that we were enthused by one of them um, and less enthused by the other appointment. Um, And I reflected that when I was watching the rather dystopian uh, inaugural address of President Trump, I was watching it uh, in having a a very delicious Turkish coffee next to the Blue Mosque and it would be I will remember for the rest of my life listening to that inaugural address being drowned out by the call for prayers mm. by the Blue Mosque. And it highlighted to me that we are now in a new era. And our, hopefully our committee report uh, will address some of those. But our committee report started by saying that more than ever, the UN is an essential global institution and a linchpin of a rules-based international order. And it possesses unique legitimacy. So we, as our very first conclusion and our very first inquiry, wanted to to reinforce our very, very strong view of not only the role of the UN, but the legitimacy of it. But of course, the agenda of the new Secretary General uh, is immense. And part of the evidence that struck us the most was really the, the, the difference in the challenges ahead compared to when... His predecessors and the institutions and all of the agencies were formed in that world order where you were so moved by uh, the the charter we didn't come to the conclusion that it needed wholesale reform within the UN agencies or indeed the radical reform that some have been some gave us evidence that suggested we should do we felt that the priorities are such that we needed to make this current structure work better rather than to replace the current structure with a new structure Um, but we also believed very strongly that the, the role of the, the Secretary General, which is more of a Secretary rather than a General, uh, myself and a couple of Scottish colleagues on the committee used our Scottish term that we, do, that we use as a chair of a committee, as a convener rather than as a chairman. And I feel very strongly that uh, Guterres as Secretary General has a very significant convening role and that convening is to build the widest possible consensus and coalitions on any of the given issues. And his skills as a convener will be put to the test. And we believe that, and the committee found, that if there was to be uh, reviews or changes or improvements to the structure of the UN, it should be on improving quality, improving the pool of appointments to the senior levels, to perhaps change the way that some of the, the member states put forward some of their candidates so that it was based on quality first. And then review, and perhaps we felt that the differed multilateral review process was a fairly appropriate process to look at the agencies and those senior management within that. But ultimately, we believed that the convening role of the Secretary General, more than perhaps ever, would require a communicator in that position. And we were impressed. I think as a committee very early on with some of the signals that he'll be taking forward the international agreements that were made in 2015 and 2016 on climate change, uh, on humanitarian assistance, um, uh, on finance for development, Uh, but we know that they they cannot be taken for granted. So a communicator sending the messages to why those agreements were made will be very, very important. In my mind, the use of the bully pulpit, which as a former American president, Theodore Roosevelt, used the bully pulpit. Uh, Some people misconstrue it. He wasn't a bully. He was, he said, by bully, we need to do this. He wanted to use the office of moral authority to inspire others. And that was the, by bully, let's do this. We can do it. Unfortunately, I think the current president sees the bully pulpit in the completely other way around. And he will see himself as as a bully to get things done. So... The Secretary General, it's obvious to say it, but the Secretary General's skills as a communicator to build the coalitions, but to communicate to the wider public. And that's why we, we were enthused by the process uh, uh, and some of the changes that were made that brought him about. We were very encouraged that millions of people were involved in the debate about what the Secretary General should be. We were enthused that countries that had, that had never been part of a process before had a much greater role in the appointment and the selection criteria for it, and the overall view of the General Assembly. And we were pleased that quite a lot of that thinking came from the UN Association here in the UK. Finally, Alex, I know you want to keep the time. um, We felt that what was going to be of fundamental importance uh, for his term will be that by the end of his first term, the relevance of that institution should not be questioned and it should not be considered to be an anti trump organization and that will be difficult but the the challenges are so great the, the humanitarian uh, pressures are meaningfully different from the past with an unprecedented unprecedented level of internally displaced people the fact that we argued <coughs> that there should be reviews for the definitions of economic migrants and uh, for those affected by climate change or for intern of conflict within states, the pressures are immense that if, if he if he's sucked into being an alternative as much as i myself as a liberal would love him to be, then that will potentially cause difficulties for the United Nations. My personal view is the international liberal order is under threat, but the vulnerability of the secretary general should not be ignored because if he if 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 he is as in my heart like would like him to be which is the standard bearer for the international liberal order it may undermine what he can do as a convener to bring about the very meaningful kind of reforms that we'll need to see to to address the challenges ahead Hmm, that's interesting alright we'll come back to you Um, Achim
1: he is going to be inundated with every conceivable problem in the world and yet if you look back on his term or any other term of a Secretary General, there's probably only a couple things that they can really do to break through and make a long-term difference. What can he do? Uh, What needs to be his priority so that he will make an impact? um, And is it going to be possible in this climate?
3: Well, let me first of all say that from the charter, the ideal and values, I think we all still have a strong sense of identification with those. And I think every public opinion poll across the world speaks to an identification with an aspiration, because even if you were not born in the aftermath of the Second World War and the chaos and trauma of what gave rise to the United Nations, if you look at this charter today, it is a universal charter of aspirational values and also from it derives this unique Jeremy, you called it legitimacy, and I think principled voice, even though, you know, in reality, every day across the world, contradictions emerge. But people sometimes view the UN as failing and, in a sense, being the cause of this. Um, I think it is important, and I say this because having worked for 10 years in it, I actually think the, the narrative that is so often invoked with the United Nations is actually a complete misrepresentation. It is not a failing institution. It actually does extraordinary things every day, and we sit here today in London at ODI to talk about the UN, but this evening there will be millions of children who will have actually had a meal because the United Nations is where others (coughs) either cannot be or do not wish to be. There are hundreds of millions of children who will go to bed tonight because they can actually not worry about polio and about other diseases because vaccinations programs have been done planes travel across national boundaries because the United Nations provides the foundation upon which nations can do. Let us reach people across the world because of the Universal Postal Union. And there are areas of the UN that people are not even aware of, enable us to be a global community that actually communicates, acts in solidarity with one another. And yes, also the UN is very often at the front lines of where member states and political leadership in countries have failed. And I think this is one of the things that I very much hope Antonio Guterres will be able to correct, first of all, that misperception of, first of all, who is responsible for the chaos and the failures around the world, which in the first instance is not the United Nations. And the United Nations was founded because of these failures being a perpetual phenomenon of intergovernmental relations and also the tensions within societies. Now, we all know that a secretary general does not have a magic wand, as Antonio himself said in one of his first statements. And I think to some extent, Alex, very often the tenure of a secretary general is actually not defined in, let's say, public perception terms or historical analysis by what he or she sets out, she being perhaps one of the future possibilities, but rather by events that define their tenure. And if you look back to Kofi Annan's tenure, probably one of the most inspiring secretaries the UN has ever had leading this institution, his tenure was defined by Saddam Hussein in Iraq, at least in the view of some. And yet much of what he was able to bring to the United Nations was transformational. He began to, I think, aspire to what Jeremy referred to as that voice, that principled voice in a a world full of contradictions that can stand out. Now... Without wishing to, you know, speculate, I think we can already see from the Secretary General's statements and decisions he has taken in the first few weeks that one particular emphasis for him will be to go upstream. He is putting a great deal of emphasis on the preventative aspects of the UN's capacity to intervene. Very often the UN is the institution that the world turns to and everything else has failed, and it is very difficult to succeed in that arena. And I think. I certainly share Antonio Guterres's view that the UN's capacity for early warning, for recognizing where things are going to fail, has been neglected, is far more capable of making a difference and therefore investing in, let's say, the broader peace and security agenda from a capacity to intervene earlier with the good offices of the UN, with its capacity to monitor what is happening, and not allowing either civil strife or dictators to simply take advantage of the vacuum and also the paralysis that often defines the international community alongside that i think he has also signaled that integration the deployment of a more cohesive um, capacity of the different entities across the u.n is of critical importance to him his early decisions about the new executive committee The signals he is sending in terms of the kind of management and leadership he is calling for within the organization point to a very strong priority in the area of linking and joining up the capacities in peace and security, the humanitarian element of the UN in its various agencies, and the development agenda. And it will be interesting to see whether he can break through some of this inertia, because we also often forget bureaucracies do have their downsides, and the UN is in many ways... Um, a prime example of lack of reform for two to three decades in fundamental elements of effective public systems and institutions. In large part, again, also the responsibility of member states, because if you watch how New York micromanages a secretary general, (coughs) whether it was Kofi Annan or Ban Ki-moon or now Antonio Guterres, when it comes to reforms, it is parochial to the extreme. Now, he has been elected by the member states. And I think many in the world were surprised that somebody like him was elected to this position at this very moment in time. So I think the signals are that in the broader sense of reform and alignment and joining up the UN, he has a very strong mandate. And um, the next few months will show whether member states are willing to give him that freedom. I think the other thing that will define his tenure is his ability and that of the member states also walking with him of leveraging and, if you want, accommodating the new geopolitical realities. What you have right now is, in many respects, the traditional powers, with one exception, in the Security Council stepping back from international leadership. And that's putting it mildly. Um, And I say with one exception because, quite clearly, China is the one permanent member of the security Council that is walking in the exact opposite direction. But we also have the emergence of Africa, not just as a continent that is a concern to the world, but actually will define a great deal of what happens next in the world, global economy and otherwise. And we have other parts of Asia that clearly in the reality of how the world will run itself and find ways to work together or fall apart, will be defined by a far greater number of countries and more diverse than has been the case to date. And I think this Secretary General will be at the forefront of helping to interpret this new reality in terms of how the UN also adjusts. Mm, Finally, if I may just point to one thing that you have both alluded to already, I think one of the perhaps more frustrating facts will be that at this very moment in time when a Secretary General has the capacity to set agendas to put new reforms in place, to convene new coalitions in the positive sense of joining up the best of what the world can provide to the UN, he is confronted with a political climate and in some parts of the world with a direct assault on fundamental principles of international law, of normative standards, <coughs> and also <coughs> excuse me, in a sense an assault on the capacity of the UN to mobilize resources, political capital, and the mandate to intervene that may actually make his tenure far more difficult far earlier than some would have wished for. Mm. Um, Well, thank you. Uh, Your your
1: second to last point uh, is a great segue uh, to go out uh, to Urvashi. Um, You know, we're sitting here in London. Can you hear me okay? Yes? Yes, I can hear you. We're sitting here in London, we're talking about America, but hasn't the world moved on? I mean, uh, there's a we're in a multipolar world, uh, India, China, Africa, as Achim said, these are the places that are going to matter for the next century. Um, uh, tell us what you think. How does a secretary General of the United Nations uh, respond to this and make it so that it's a United Nations that actually represents the world today and not the world of 1945 or, or thereabouts.
4: Thanks. Uh, I hope I'm audible. Thanks, ODI. It's a pleasure to join this conversation and be part of this panel. Um, I've never done a video link like this before, so I hope the connection doesn't drop. And it's also a bit challenging because you can't see the the faces of your audience. You have no idea to what extent you're making sense or not. So hopefully, hopefully this works out fine. Um, I mean, I think maybe okay, fantastic. That's that's all I needed to hear. I mean, I think there's you know. There's two kinds of points that I'd like to make. I mean, one, I guess the challenge for the new Secretary General is how to remain relevant in a multipolar world. And you have a multipolar world, but still in that multipolar world, it seems like there is a greater need than ever before for... A kind of multilateralism. And the UN, despite all its shortcomings, is the only body that can catalyze that kind of global multilateralism. Um, but to be able to do that, to be able to manage multilateralism in the multipolar world has to start, I think, with questions of trust and legitimacy and, and representation. Um, and I think that's going to be uh, the biggest challenge for the UN in the years to come. And I think, you know, one, one what I'd like to add here is perhaps you know, the the Indian perspective on the kind of expectations of the of the new UN uh, Secretary-General and how it links to these questions about the trust and the legitimacy of the UN, Um, I mean, if you look at at where India's kind of positioning on it, it's been fairly consistent in its argument for reform of the UN structure. And this has been something that India has been saying for a while, but I think it becomes even more pressing in the context of the shifting global balance of power. And obviously the most kind of often cited or or the issue that comes to mind most immediately is a reform of the UN Security Council, where India hopes to get a permanent seat. But I think it's more than a reform of the Security Council. I mean, if you look at the kind of statements coming out of India, and, and, I, and I'm saying India, but even other number of other developing countries. Um, there, there is a strong sense that, that there is a democratic deficit in global governance institutions anchored within the UN, and this deficit needs to be addressed. And that's not just the UN Security Council. I mean, I think two interesting examples to think about is that northern or western, whatever the correct language that we're using today, um, continue to have a very disproportionate share in the exec, in the executive board of, an, of a number of UN entities, whether it's UNDP, whether it's UNICEF, OCHA. So, um, that that democratic deficit extends beyond the Security Council. I mean, similarly, if we look at, um, uh, again, a concern that India has raised often is a lack of institutionalized interaction and consultation between the Security Council and peacekeeping troop contributing countries. Um, so those are, you know, two clear examples in which we have this democratic deficit and that democratic deficit urgently needs to be addressed. Um, and which need to be, you know. So I think for the UN to retain the relevance for developing countries, for emerging countries, we have to address that. And and I feel like the conversation should not be stalled at just the UN Security Council reform. There's many levels lower down that can be addressed. Um, and I think the kind of second set of expectations for the the new uh, Secretary General would be clustered around the peace and security issue. And here I would echo what was what was said uh, before me that. Um, I think what we will see from India and a a number of other emerging economies is they would like to see a much greater emphasis on preventive diplomacy, a much greater emphasis on conflict prevention, Um, and that is something that will be enabled by greater commitments by member states to actually strengthening national governments, actually strengthening national institutions. Um, so for an example, you know, we continue to make very, very poor contributions to peace to, the, to peace building missions, but at the same time, we spend a lot of money on military intervention. So the argument has been that, you know, we need to start focusing member state resources on this prevention aspect of it. And I think that's, that's gonna come up again. Um, And again, from the Indian perspective, one of the concerns recently, the Indian foreign secretary met with the UN um, secretary general, and one of the big concerns was around terrorism. I mean, for India now, it's very clear that terrorism is the biggest threat to peace and security. And I think India has felt that UN leadership on this has been pretty weak. And the kind of background to this was that there was this comprehensive convention on international terrorism that was proposed by India in 1996, Um, but it's yet to be adopted by the UN because of opposition by member states, including the United States and a number of Islamic countries. So, um, you know, this this is a priority for India, that this issue of terrorism be addressed. Um, and the third, and I think the third kind of cluster of issues or the third conversation that will be relevant uh, from the emerging economy perspective is with regard to Agenda 2030, so with regard to Sustainable Development Goals. And I think here the main concern is around questions of implementation, particularly around questions of financing. Um, you know, So we saw that India, for an example, was aligned with the SDG agenda, but was much less convinced by the actual commitments made by member states towards that agenda. Uh, financial commitments made towards that agenda. So, you know, we didn't at the Financing for Development Conference, we didn't see any new commitments by traditional donors in terms of ODA. In fact, few have met their kind of 0.7 percent GNI commitments. Um, And I think there was some kind of pushback that, you know, this SDG agenda was not going to be fulfilled through South-South cooperation alone or domestic resource mobilization alone, that all of these were additionalities that it didn't detract from the traditional kind of North-South responsibility. Um, And that what was required was, um, you know, much. And so, you know, so what what does that mean for the expectations of the new UN secretary general is that there should be greater leadership on this question of financing sustainable development. uh, And that should be uh, a universal agenda, not just one in which the South-South actors are kind of filling the gap in existing. Uh, financial commitments and I think the the other one is around technology transfer I mean that I think that is something that developing countries would also like to see the um, secretary general take leadership on that there needs to be technology transfer mechanisms technological collaboration between the north and south uh, without which um, the, the sustainable development agenda can't be achieved Great. so you know in a nutshell i mean I think if if we were talking about the the expectations of the UN UN Secretary General, it would be around promoting that structural reform and not just Security Council, thinking about conflict prevention, um, and, and, and then thinking about implementation of the SDGs and mobilizing member states, really exercising leadership to mobilize member states to make the financial commitments that are required to implement the SDG agenda.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Uh, and we were able to hear all of that, and you made sense. So thank you. Uh, we'll come back to you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, cri- um, Christina, um, all of this war and peace stuff floats around. You, you have lived in the guts of the UN, and you've appreciated it and criticized it from the outside as well. Um, but the thing, is, as Aachen was sort of saying, the thing that many people around the world see every day is... The humanitarian response of right. the united nations um, it's the it's the pointy end of the spear and probably there wouldn't really be a humanitarian system today without the bones of of the un system there um, and we've just been through kind of some of the worst period of crisis that the un has ever seen and that has has yet to abate um, so you don't have to say humanitarian but um, how, does, how does Gutierrez, who obviously is deeply embedded in that after a decade at UNHCR, how does he elevate that agenda um, and, and make it work in a world that seems to be pulling apart?
5: Yep. Thanks, Alex, and, and thanks to my colleagues here for, for saying some of the things that I'm actually probably going to repeat, which is the worst part about being last on a panel. But, um, but I guess we're <clears> – <throat> sorry, and I have a cold, so pardon me for <clears throat> needing some water, I think, from time to time. Um, but for me, it's exactly what you're saying, Alex. I mean, I haven't cried at reading the UN Charter, and it's probably because I was embedded in the UN for so many years. Um, but I always am struck when I read it, because I did pull it out in preparation for this for this talk, and I'm always struck when I read it about the way it starts. The preamble to the UN Charter is, we the peoples of the United Nations, and you always think of the United Nations as being, up, uh, being made up of these member states that are always at loggerheads with one another, but actually, The the, the United Nations is is by the people for the people. And I think that's sort of my starting point and where I would see the the priority of the the new secretary general and the priority of of the institution that is going to be facing many political um, challenges in these next few years and God knows for how long. But... um, So, you know, I would say if there was one thing that I would tell Mr. Gutierrez right now, it would be to bring about those political solutions to crises because as we, the peoples of the United Nations, um, making their lives better is its primary responsibility and that's where I would start. Um, Of course, that's what you'd expect a humanitarian to say on a panel like this, but I believe I have just cause for saying it, right? Um, The work of the UN, its development agenda, its climate agenda, all the things that we've been talking about on this panel, is dependent on peaceful societies. And what do we have now? We have active violent conflict raging in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in South Sudan, in Myanmar, in northern Nigeria, you name it. There are other places as well. And by 2030, we'll have three-quarters of the world's poor living in these conflict-affected states. So while um, you know, critics are sounding the death knell of multilateralism, and we've all been talking about the challenges to the UN as an institution on this panel, I still think that the UN is the only um, organization, and maybe to your Winston Churchill comment, that has kind of the, the combination of the institutions the ethos and, frankly, the legitimacy of being able to to manage these crises. And I think that's where we need to start. It needs to be politically confident, it needs to be coherent um, in its action, and it needs to be institutionally strong. And this is where I come to where I think Mr. Gutierrez um, should focus his attention. One is to capitalize on non-Western leverage. And to take advantage of these coalitions of the willing that we see cropping up and primarily around crisis context but you could also say around other uh you know agendas such as climate or environment um not just because we're seeing sort of a recession of western strength and influence and frankly interest in the organization but because the balance of crisis response has been shifting um, in terms of where its power lies for some time i mean in the humanitarian sector we've seen china rise as a much more prominent and active actor, not only as a funder, but also as as an actor on the ground. It's got this One Belt, One Road initiative, which is an economic initiative, but through which it's channeling lots, you know, millions and millions of dollars to the people of Jordan to manage the Syrian refugee crisis there. Um, we've also got the Gulf states, who have been long tagged as, you know, emerging, uh, emerging responders, emerging donors, and they've been showing themselves to be quite generous, quite consistent in their funding, and actually showing interest in funding and responding to things outside their sphere of influence. So it's no longer just about the Gulf or the Middle East anymore. They're going beyond what they've done in the past, in Western Europe or in places like Ukraine. We've seen coalitions of volunteer organizations coming together around displacement and really demonstrating what human compassion can do in times of strife. Um, We've got private businesses putting together coalitions themselves for helping with the refugee crisis um, and going around government for doing some of that. Um, And in December, we had the UN General Assembly outmaneuver the Security Council on calling for an investigation into war crimes in Syria. Um, And that demonstrates what coalitions of governments can do against dominant powers. So Mm -hmm. Mr. Guterres should be taking advantage of the political dynamism, the funding, um, and legitimacy that those governments bring to the conversation in the absence of perhaps Western domination. and as other colleagues have said this morning, I, Mr. Guterres should reorient the work of the United Nations around crisis prevention. And we've all we've all said it. I think it's kind of a no-brainer. It's an obvious point. And frankly, I've heard other secretaries general say it before him. So, so why, why doesn't it happen? Why is it that when we think of the UN, we think of the, you know, where there's a crisis, where there's a tragedy, there are white cars, there are blue helmets, there are aid workers running around, and that's the public face of the UN, as you've said. Um, why is the UN the firehouse um, of, the, of the global community when there are perfectly uh, good, you know, there's, perfectly, there's a lot of capacity and, and perfectly good people in countries that are able to do that first line response themselves? Where the UN has the comparative advantage is in its mediation, in its good offices, in its peacekeeping, in its peace building abilities, and its role in bringing those all together to prevent crises before they happen. Even the Security Council, um, who has shown itself to be really irresponsible in managing crises, wouldn't it be better oriented as a body to to preventing crises versus obstructing action when crises, in fact, happen? Um, you know, Mr. Gutierrez has himself said that this should be a top priority of his, um, of his tenure, and we've heard this all before. Um, so you know, why, you know, what has prevented other people from doing it in the past, and this comes to my third point, which is sort of to Urvashi's point as well, that really, first and foremost, Mr. Gutierrez has to get his own house in order. Um, He is the CEO of a very complex organization, but, um, you know, he's got a a cadre of talented, energetic, really dedicated people, most of whom work very hard in very, very difficult jobs. They crave leadership. They crave vision. I would have counted myself as one of those people. Um, But they work within a system and within a governance structure that is outdated, outmoded, and does not reflect the geopolitics of what's happening today. So what does he need to do? You know, starting with the Security Council, its governance, its power relations don't reflect the multipolarity of the world today. That's a hard nut to crack, but it needs to um, get away from being held hostage time and time again to the interests of its dominant powers. The UN development system is fragmented. There are more than 1,500 offices in the UN development system across 180 countries. And that's not even counting the sub-offices and the sub-sub-offices of each of those organizations in the countries where they work. And the global humanitarian system, such that it is a system at all, is incentivized um, to prioritize costly response over any kind of preventative action, any kind of preparedness, or allowing some of the the first response to come from those governments, those local organizations, those municipalities, (coughs) where there is capacity and there is willingness to get the job done themselves. So um, the, fr- the fragmentation of the system is appalling um, and crippling, and so palpable is the frustration with the UN by governments that they're taking matters into their own hands, for better or for worse. Um, how can he get that back? Um, how can he re-legitimize the UN um, in, in the interests of, of world order? Um, is Mr. Guterres the right man for the job? I think he is. You've alluded to the fact that he ran UNHCR for 10 years, and I think it makes him um, perfectly capable of this job. He understands what conflict does to so- societies. He understands that his success will depend on managing those crises um, and ensuring relief and safety for those who are living under them. But he also hopefully understands that part of his litmus test is to re is, is to get his own working house in order and truly manage the, the UN system, um, not only in the eyes of the member states, but coming back to my, my first point, in the eyes of the people for whom the United Nation is committed to by way of its charter. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Um, So uh, start formulating your questions. We're going to attempt a lightning round. I'm going to ask you each a quick follow-up question. You will be given one minute, (laughs) uh, and then we're going to go out to the audience and people online for some questions, so think of something pithy. So, Jeremy, uh, as we saw, uh, Guterres returned from his trip abroad visiting Ethiopia, largest acceptor, I think, of refugees at the moment, or among the largest uh, in the African continent, um, and immediately got into a pretty direct spat with President Trump over his executive order on immigration. So can Guterres survive if he is in direct conflict with the president of the United States? And alternatively, can he survive if he's not in direct conflict with the president of the United States?
2: Um, We've probably got what three or three years to to find that out? Um, the the U.S. has activated its power for to refuse the reappointment of the Secretary General. Um, we hope, I think, um, my views. I hope that the the ground has shifted for the appointment of Secretary General sufficiently in this process that it's been much more open. It doesn't go to the extent of Avashi. Uh, and some of the evidence that we received in the committee about a more wholesale change of the appointment process. But I think the ground has shifted considerably that the direct influence of the President or Secretary of State would be reduced. Whether it's not, whether or not it's powerful enough, I think we will, we will have to see in due course. But leading up to that point, the fact that if the Secretary-General <coughs> restates what the USA is a signatory to, and the validity and the strength of what it... The, the the US has signed up to then I think he's on very secure ground
1: and I think that's exactly what he he did do that's good um Arham, you didn't take the easy bait and just say first answer and last answer is climate change which I thought was interesting um, if I would ask my kids uh, they're 10 and 12 um, they would say what well, you guys are talking about is deck chairs moving deck chairs on the Titanic because this sh- ship is sinking not because we're hitting iceberg because but the iceberg is melting Um, does all of this matter if the number one priority of the united nations is not to deal with the global threat that climate change poses
3: well i'm not worried at the moment that in the united nations and in the vast majority of capitals around the world climate change is actually a number one priority I mean, people still need to remember that against all odds in just 25 years through the convention, through the IPCC, through the work of so many at national level, but ultimately enabled by the United Nations, we managed to bring the world together and have a collective response to climate change. Now, we can see how volatile it is. We can see that it is not adequate in terms of a 2050 timeline and actions taken. But, um, you know, if you speak to any UN official today, which is one barometer, climate change is right there. Now, what is happening in Washington on the climate change front is going to be, I think, extremely interesting over the next few months, because what I think will happen is that if the U.S. chooses or opts to actually walk away in one form or another, either by ignoring it, by you know withdrawing or whatever the te- technique may be from the Paris Agreement, I think you will see a world very quickly beginning to rethink how it will deal with America outside of a Paris Agreement. And that, I think, is something that the United Nations can in part facilitate as a constructive dialogue, but it cannot tell the United States what to do. The other part of it, I think, is also that, Jeremy, it's very important that we also accept that climate change is not a freestanding challenge for the world. The only way to address decarbonization, deep decarbonization of our economies, unprecedented in terms of the scale, magnitude, and the short time we have, has to happen embedded in a context that relates to development, to economic choices, to infrastructure, and, yes, also to north-south collaboration. And whether that is couched in future in the common but differentiated responsibilities language, which I think has in some ways outlived its definitional value, there is a collective capacity to respond to climate change that is predicated on the United Nations being a central reference point for that. But not by taking climate change out all the time, saying we're going to deal with peace and security, and then we're going to deal with this, and then there is climate change. Climate change is embedded in virtually all of the areas of the Sustainable Development Goals. And therefore, back to echo a little bit, to me, the United Nations has also been given this remarkable opportunity to address what I have sometimes called the missing half of the whole globalization agenda for the last 30 years, the SDGs. Is actually the other half because everything has centered around an economic paradigm of trade and liberalization the SDGs are the other half of a globalization agenda and it can rebalance and to some extent address the frustration of this one-eyed approach to international development that we have seen dominate the development discourse international relations mm. through a very narrow lens of defining trade as the all enabling or disabling um, platform on which to deal with globalization.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Orvashi. Um, you could argue, one could argue, uh, that uh, we now have a Security Council uh, that has four of five permanent members that are nationalist-leaning governments, and maybe if India joins, it'll become five out of six. Um, how, how do we credibly talk about the incredible burdens that we've just placed collectively on multilateralism in a world that is clearly moving uh, in the opposite direction.
4: I mean, one of the points that I think I wanted to pick up on from the previous speaker, you know, when we we're talking about globalization, I and mean, what we've also seen, I think, is a kind of incomplete globalization, right? Where we've had a globalization in terms of movement of of capital, we've had a, mo- a globalization in terms of movement of goods, but we haven't had a globalization in terms of the free movement of people, right? And I think that's the important other ingredient of this globalization question that becomes relevant for the new uh, Secretary General. But to respond more directly to your question, I mean, how do we... We, you know, When we see this increasingly kind of fragmented world, um, where do we go from there? Um, you know, the, on, on the one hand, I think we have to recognize that you know, emerging powers, if you look at the recent BRICS conference, time after, year after year, all their declarations have actually affirmed the centrality of the UN. They've affirmed the centrality of the UN to create a just rule-based international order. So what that says is that there is a value attached to that forum right that value is not being thrown out uh even if it's a symbolic value that that we have to retain that's we have to retain that symbolism. Um, but at the same time, what we also see is that a lot of conversations are actually happening in forums that are outside the UN. So whether it's BRICS or it's IPSA or it's the G20 or it's the new Asian Development Bank or it's the OECD. So when you kind of put those two things together, it seems like the real functioning of the, of the UN is to play that kind of coordination role, to play that role of information sharing, knowledge sharing, and, and to play the role of building trust across these various actors. And so maybe what we're going to end up seeing is A more kind of you know polycentric kind of governance arrangement, much looser kind of governance arrangements involving a multitude of actors, and what is kind of going to hold that governance together is issues of trust and legitimacy, Mm. not necessarily the kind of top-down coercive or institutional kind of mechanisms that we've been used to. Um, Thanks. Thanks. and, And again, I mean.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, let, let me let me take that point and, and go to Christina, because you, you make this compelling argument about the Security Council and not being able to deal with effectively with peace and security situations, which will likely lead to more coalitions of the willing as opposed to uh, international action under a UN umbrella where peace and security is concerned. And in some ways, Arvashi is saying maybe that's a good approach, but it also risks fundamentally undermining the purposes of the of the system on the peace and security side for which it was created.
5: Yeah, no, I don't think what I was saying. Um, thanks, Alex. I don't think what I was saying was that the coalitions of the willing should be should overtake um, the prime the, the centrality of the UN or the primacy of the UN on some of these issues. And I think sort of what Arvashi was saying that you know there are, there is a movement. F- toward these coalitions or governments taking matters into their own hands and going around the UN um, where, you know, uh, where the UN doesn't have a role to play. I mean, we saw that in terms of, of crisis. We saw that in Colombia where you had a bunch of of, of groups getting together over the over, over FARC um, and not involving the UN in those negotiations. So it's not always that the UN has to be at the center of all this. However, what I think the UN can do is bring together, is sort of the convening power that Jeremy was talking about, to bring together, to to serve as the convener of these coalitions of the willing and embolden them and support them and provide channel funding to them so that they... Are, they do become the dominant voice of global politics. That in an era where we're being challenged by some of the, you know, Western powers, go around them. We don't need them necessarily all the time. There are other coalitions that can be formed around the issues that that are that are global that the, the UN cares about and wants to promote. And in, in doing so, it will recreate the UN's legitimacy and perhaps around a more balanced uh, a, a balanced way for itself. Um, and in creating that legitimacy, you might see a reversion back to the rules-based system that everybody is, is you know, decrying the death of right now.
1: Great. Thanks. So um, let's. I've got a couple of online questions, but let's go first in the room. Um, I'm going to take uh, two questions to start. Please state your name, where you're from. Make it brief. Uh, we have a microphone. Uh, and if your question is directed towards somebody in particular, please let us know. So gentlemen in the back.
6: <clears throat> Thank you, Adrian Hewitt. I'm a senior research associate at ODI. And, and uh, sorry, and um, as I'm going to ask a critical question, <coughs> i better also state that I'm a great fan of the UN, albeit not a lacrimose one. Um, and uh, I'll apologize for talking about not a P5 or a potential P6 uh, member, but a tiny member state of the UN. Uh, and it is th- this is the following. Um, In a few weeks' time, I'm going to go to Haiti for ODI. We've got four people working in uh, the public sector there, helping to support a very weak government. Um, And it'll be the second time I go to Haiti. First time was probably a dozen years ago, and in those days, Haiti didn't have um, cholera. But we have to take all the precautions this time. Now, the uh, the cholera came with the UN, there's scientific proof of that. And the UN Secretary General, heavily advised by his lawyers, of course, um, took a very curious, the last UN Secretary General, General, took a very curious stance on the problems of Haiti and somehow took refuge behind some form of corporate diplomatic immunity for the whole organization, which I'm sure exists legally, (laughs) but it it was terrible for Haiti and it could set a terrible precedent. So my question is, um, do you think the new UN Secretary General should look at this again for the big question, but also for one of its poorest members? Haiti is a least developed country and it suffered a lot from
1: this. Thanks. And then, the, uh, let, just, just to add something. Let, let, me, let me stop you there. We'll go to a second question. No, no, question. I've got to say something,
6: because I've just read that Steve Bannon, I, I, on Monday, I've just come back from the Far East, and on Monday I was Adrian, sitting if, in Lingayen if, Bay. Adrian, if uh, uh, you wouldn't... I've just read that Steve Bannon has said uh, that the U.S. is going to go to war over the South China Sea. So, in fact, uh, the U.N. Secretary General has got more to do than just bother about Haiti, I'm afraid.
1: <laughs> That's for sure. Please, right here.
0: Hi, my name is Stephanie Hechenberger. I'm a student at LSE, right uh, um, across the Thames. I very much like the argument about the importance of reform at the UN, and my question is, well, there are scholars who say there's disruption needed if we really want real change. So in face of Trump's presidency, well there, there's this saying critics say uh, domination of, there's domination of the US in many institutions um, around the world and also on, in the UN and that makes it, uh, that made it really hard for the status quo to break. So in face of uh, Trump's um, presidency and kind of loss of trust and legitimacy around the international community um, could this, could new, a new power relation emerge from here? And my question is to what extent do you think Trump's presidency is the disruption that we needed for change?
1: Huh. Interesting, inadvertent change in the international system. Um, why don't you not all answer all of those mm-hmm. questions, but if you uh, have thoughts, Jeremy? I,
2: I don't know about, uh, for, point for Haiti, I don't know enough about that, but our, our committee did consider accountability. Um, we focused on peacekeeping roles and, and the, the concern that we'd had about sexual abuse and peacekeeping, uh, the fact that there still isn't pre-deployment training for peacekeeping forces and there isn't sufficient um, transparency in the operation of, of that particular aspect. But we did also believe that the, the, this is the opportunity for a new UN Secretary General to, to reform the review and accountability, <coughs> not only of the Secretary General, but senior leadership. Doesn't directly address the point. Um, South China Sea issue. I, I very suspect that one of the candidates for our next inquiry. We're two thirds through our inquiry in the Middle East at the moment. Our next probably will be within that region. Um, and having been there uh, in the autumn um, in, in, in Taiwan, I know that um, it, it's it's a very sensitive issue at all. With regards to whether um, the Trump presidency will be a kind of a destructive catalyst uh, to something, it may be. It may be. Rather than a, a, a catalyst for substantial reordering of the regime, it may actually be inadvertently um, provide the basis of when we reassert the principles behind it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And the, the fact that we are seeing some of the challenges more so in the Western countries with regards to our uncertainty about how we respond to one of the elements of globalization and the fact that the response for that has been a degree of isolation as is a more country first. Seeing it in the UK, we've seen it. That is not shared across other regions uh, necessarily, uh, or, it's, or it's considered in a different way. So perhaps we are, and I, this is, I, I was really impressed with Ovasi's points. Perhaps we are always looking at it from our prism, from the Western perspective, rather than seeing it from, from, from elsewhere. But ultimately, I think it's going to be an opportunity of re- reasserting that there being a, a rules-based international system of government which is able and capable of addressing some of the challenges. But it has to demonstrate that it does beyond the humanitarian. And I think that is probably one of the big weaknesses because otherwise we'll simply see the UN as the, the humanitarian coordinator rather than being a system of governance which fundamentally it was meant, designed to be in the outset. Mm
1: do you want to say something about Haiti? Do you have uh, thoughts no. about the...
5: No, I would just say, though, that if, if, if Mr. Guterres wants to reestablish the legitimacy of the UN, he th- needs to take those kinds of situations seriously and investigate them thoroughly. But um, in terms of the details of that, I, w- I wouldn't know um, what the first step might be. Um, but on the UN reform question, I guess to your point, I would just say that is- events have been the disruptors in the push toward reforming at least the humanitarian system. Um, <clears throat> we're faced with you know, uh, unprecedented levels of, uh, of displacement, of too many um, hot crises all at the same time requiring a capacity and a level of funding that the current humanitarian system simply doesn't have. So we've already had that, disrup- that disruption happen to-, to us as a system and frankly, the conversation <coughs> about the shifts in power and the, the reforms that need to happen at the UN are already taking place. Those conversations have happened, and that train has left the station. The Trump presidency isn't the disruptor for us. It may hasten that disruption or hasten what needs to happen around <coughs> um, the disruption that's already happened for us, but humanitarian crises have already shaken us enough or shaken the humanitarian sector enough to need to reform.
1: Mm.
3: Well, two brief remarks on the issue of Haiti and cholera. I think what we saw in the years immediately following this tragedy, and it was a tragedy um, of, you know, the last thing that Haiti needed was cholera to be added on top of everything. But let us also put two things in perspective. One is the events that led to it are tragic in themselves because peacekeepers who were deployed to help Mm. tragically brought with them cholera. It was not by intent. This is an accident that has happened. Now, what was... Unforgivable was the approach that the Office of Legal Affairs, let's be very <laughs> clear, that is bound increasingly by a US-based litigious culture of risk management and risk minimization paralyzed the Secretary General and the UN system ability to first of all acknowledge what had happened, and secondly, very much be on the forefront of responding to helping Haiti deal with this. I think the notion of culpability to me was a red herring, but the UN, because of the legal advice given, made itself almost a dartboard on which the frustration of the world would play out. But let us also give credit. Just before leaving office, the Secretary General did actually take the unprecedented step of offering an apology. And I think the UN has actually been at the forefront with support from member states with tens of millions of dollars of trying to deal with how to assist Haiti to get cholera under control. But if there is one area of reform, given that the UN has diplomatic immunity, then it is also to introduce a different culture in the legal advice that is given to the Secretary General, not ignoring the risks to the UN, which are many, but also not determining what is a moral and principled response that the UN could have easily provided and done. And that's perhaps the second part. I think what will drive reform? Successive Secretary Generals have put reform agendas in place. The question is, first of all, whether Member States are willing to have the UN reform. because, quite frankly, the product of paralysis is also the product of Member States actually being quite comfortable with the UN not evolving. It is the victim of benign neglect by those who have governed it for the last 20 years and have successively or successfully hampered the efforts of successive Secretary Generals. In that, there may be the more parochial things like a broken human resources management system. The UN has a disastrous human resources culture administration tied to it also an internal justice system that has created perverse incentives. I mean, very clear. I'm I'm not sitting here saying the UN does not need reform. It has disastrous elements of management that preclude it from actually evolving the kind of culture that makes people who join the UN some of the most committed professional people in the world give up, and we've had some high-level resignations with very clear statements across the spectrum over the last few years. But then the Secretary General right now needs member states to step up to the plate in the General Assembly, in the Fifth Committee, and say to him, you have our support. Tell us what you actually want to change. The UN is perfectly reformable, but not in the hypocritical kind of governance discussions that say, reform, reform. And, you know, you may send John Bolton to New York and think that you're actually driving reform. Um, He was, you know, one of the U.S. permanent representatives. No, you have to build a consensus amongst member states so that India and the U.S. or Botswana and Bangladesh don't end up stopping reforms. And this is a purely hypothetical juxtaposition, by the way. (laughs) Because of a P5 position that they want. It is tragic if you look at how governance is actually transacted by member states today, where sometimes... A principled reform by the Secretary General that makes eminent sense is stopped because one country does not get an appointment at even a P5 level or a D1 level or an under-Secretary General post. If member states can finally rediscover that the value of the UN is premised upon allowing a Secretary General to take reforms forward, you will see Antonio Guterres doing remarkable things in just one or two years. And that, I think, is going to be an interesting test over the next few weeks, mm. including to the new administration in Washington, because that may be an area in which there is room for convergence. The frustration about lack of reform could easily be translated into an alliance for deep reform.
1: Mm. Well, that's an impassioned statement by somebody who's clearly just struggled with these issues for 10 years. Uh, Ravashi, do you have anything to add on those questions? I've got a couple of more.
4: I guess I would just quickly say, I mean, just to pick up on the disruption point of view, I mean, I think we've had many disruptive elements before. We've seen disruption before. But the question is, how much does the disruption actually result in change? I mean, the World Humanitarian Summit, where Christina and I bumped each other many times, I think is a good example. There were many reasons for change. There were many reasons for reform. There was a two year process spent deliberating a lot of reform, but very little actually happened for a multitude of reasons. So I think, you know, the, the, the disruption in itself doesn't tell us about the change that's going to follow. And on the Trump question, I think one of the things that it does highlight to me is the need need at least to think about this question of reform reform a little more in depth especially when we're talking about security council reform that it's not just about rearranging the guys who are on the table at the p5 but also rearranging or questioning the idea of veto power right if we have five new actors and they all have a veto power in one of them and like you mentioned earlier we see a kind of rise of nationalist right wing governments then the security council is not going to be able to actually promote that agenda of uh, a liberal world order. So the disruptive thing around the disruptive question for me around the Trump re-election is how do we think election, not re-election, oh God, is how we think about uh, the question of the veto.
1: <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, we'll all pretend we didn't hear that. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, so two two interesting and interrelated questions that I might try to split. Uh, uh, who, who responds to what here. We've got one from, uh, uh, Nilima, I'm not sure coming from where. Um, how can, uh, the new Secretary General be a leader on sustainable development finance, uh, when many UN agencies lack a predictable core operational budget and permanent staff? Um, And so maybe I'll ask the two of you uh, who've lived and worked inside the UN to respond to that. And then we have Yvonne Jeffrey from Save the Children, who has asked that uh, Guterres has said that he will prioritize gender equality and empowerment of women and girls. Um, How, given everything else that we've talked about, um, is he going to best be able to do that? And maybe I can turn to Urvashi and Jeremy, for that one, given that this is such a core element of your government's, uh, well, the the British government's uh, priorities on international development have been around women and girls for for some time. So maybe on the first question? Do you want to start? No,
5: please. Um, So maybe on the first question on development finance, I mean, I think part of what um, Mr. Gutierrez could do is you know, basically push it, push a lot of that back to to the member states. I mean, the development agenda, the UN's role in the development agenda needs to be streamlined. The UN needs to decide what it has a comparative advantage to do, where it can make its mark, um, and then align um, the way it spends its own resources around that. Um, and after streamlining the organization and streamlining its its uh, what it does along, um, you know, along development issues, then turn it back to the member states who themselves. Are responsible for implementing the development agenda, for implementing the SDGs, um, and themselves can take on the some of the financial responsibility of what that happens through their own, you know, tax tax revenues and and raising the funds themselves.
3: Awesome. Two two observations. I think first of all, <clears throat> there is a kind of foundational discussion that needs to be reanimated about the 0.7 target. I think there has to be an acknowledgement not only in terms of an obligation or a once-negotiated decision in the General Assembly that industrialized countries will make a commitment to the idea of international development finance. And quite frankly, if you um, look at how many countries have actually risen to that challenge already, and others have failed, then this is not an impossible objective to attain. But the 0.7 is a foundational base. I think what the public and ultimately, therefore, taxpayers are looking for, is what is the value of us putting more money into international cooperation, whether directly through the UN or not? And I think here, the United Nations, um, including, again, the member states, I think need to move beyond a kind of, you know, agenda where international effort is (coughs) premised on the one hand on the North giving more money, and then the South will agree to new policies, which has been in some ways defining the negotiations for years and years. First of all, it distorts the amount that developing countries already invest. I mean, in the field of environment, whether it's biodiversity or climate change response or other areas, I was always struck in the international meetings of Conference of the Parties how the South completely undersold its own investments, which were actually often larger than many developing, developed countries were making, Because of this notion of common but differentiated responsibility, so unless the North pays more money, we cannot sign up to what is common sense international collaboration. Secondly, the UN is not the place that can equalize an unequal world in terms of economies and GDP and per capita income. If it comes to its own funding, it certainly has to earn the confidence of those who will give it money through the quality of work that it does. The UN is ridiculously underfunded in terms of its potential and also the mandates given to it. But part of that is also the function because the perception is that its machinery is not able to evolve, reform and therefore deliver a product that is in line with the expectations of member states. It's a distorted discussion because the amount of money the UN gets is actually minimal in global terms, but it is still a significant amount of money and the UN could do more if it puts reforms in place with the money it has, and then more money will follow. In the UK, I've often had um, the impression that there is a default decision in the development finance arena to turn to the World Bank and the Bretton Woods institutions because they're able to market themselves as more effective and efficient investors in development and not to use the UN because of the complexity of the bureaucracy. There is some truth in that, but the conclusion, I think, is also not proven that IBRD or Bretton Woods led financing in development context necessarily delivers better results. So we have a complex discussion that has to happen. Final, very brief anecdote the UN can make a big difference in agenda setting. I personally am still fascinated by the work that we did in, U- in the UN Environment Programme when we took the issue of green finance hey. to the centre of ministers of finance, the G20, the central banks. And essentially helped to reframe a discussion about how, within the broader context of the SDGs, an emerging green economy required also a significant response by the financial system. And as you saw at the last G20 summit, for the first time, ministers of finance and then heads of state commissioned actually a working group on green finance. That work had, in significant part, its origins in an analytical report of the UN Environment Programme, just one part of the UN family. We can set agendas, but we can't turn a world upside down that is defined by economic inequality and also by a lack of institutional confidence sometimes.
1: Great. Great. Um, turning to you, Orvashi, uh, I think a lot of the work that we do here at ODI um, suggests that probably the best investment in global development dollar for dollar is women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, how is this actually going to be carried out as an agenda for the UN in, in, in Guterres' term?
4: Um, I mean, I I want to make one point about the financing, but I'll start with the gender. Um I mean, you know, when we, when we were having these discussions around the World Humanitarian Summit, there was this strong kind of recommendation that emerged that we must put gender first. Um, and I think there's... And yes, that's definitely the case. We must put gender first, but I think there's two other aspects that we need to consider and it would be important for the UN to take leadership on. One is the kind of instrumentalized instrumentalization of putting gender first right I mean there's a lot of discussion now I mean we have the recent McKinsey report that if you get women to work your global GDP increases by X percent and only if that increases can the SDGs be achieved so I think you have to be wary of that instrumentalized role that that sometimes we advocate agenda and and I think the other thing is that you know the the gender conversation, often I think, ends up excluding other conversations as well, right? We end up including children, the disabled, aging population. So it's not just putting gender first, it's bringing, putting people first, right? Bringing together all these various marginalized groups and making sure that they are at the forefront of the agenda. So um, so that, that, that would be my point on gender. And I just want to quickly come in on, on the financing point of view. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's two, there's concrete ways in which the UN can play an important role in financing. And and here we have an interesting kind of paradox. If you look at the Financing for Development conference that happened at Addis, you had developing countries saying that we want to take this multinational tax agreement out of the OECD and put it into the UN, right? Because developing countries are losing trillions of dollars every year because of multinational tax avoidance. But the UN... I mean, the UN was unable to adopt that agenda. Um, So, so, you know, you have opportunities in which developing countries are saying, we want the UN to be at the forefront of this agenda because we recognize the centrality, we recognize its legitimacy, we recognize its convening power. um, And and I think that needs to happen. So the UN can play that kind of important role for developing de- development finance, um, and similarly, I mean, one of the you know one of the complaints from or concerns from developing countries is that while the South-South cooperation agenda is being made central within the UN, the norms about the North-South development aid are still being decided at the DAC at OECD, and again, those need to be pulled back into the UN. So I think you just have an interesting situation where you have developing countries recognizing the legitimacy of a forum and calling for that forum to. Take that convening role, but we don't have that. We don't have. We don't see that translating into action.
1: Mm. Um, Jeremy, probably one of the most consistent elements of development policy in the UK for the last number of years has been a strong focus on elevating women and girls. Uh, h- how do you think that the UK should push the UN to make that a central agenda?
2: And I think that that as a result of that consensus, I think that uh, the UK can take a a fairly um, proud look at the position that it has and certainly through its different support can lever in for the work I think a number of years ago there was a political consensus formed that we simply would not meet the uh, which were then the MDGs now the global goals, they will simply as I've, uh, I've actually said, they will simply not be met if we have a disproportionate kind of support for half of the world's population, more than half of the world's population and it's just a basic fundamental the hard elements of is how uh, you, you deliver through to the programs that will make kind of the differences. The, there's an additional element of the, I think the Secretary General can be a very clear champion uh, to stand up against very egregious practices and human rights and, and violations of the rule of law when it comes to women and children being victims of that. And I would like to see the, the, the new Secretary General doing it. The, the second thing, which is a, an absolute passion of mine, but I would also, it's, we always add to the list of his uh, priorities, and we, in our committee we say we cannot simply have a list of 200 things he has to do, we should have to narrow it down, but I'm now adding to this long list. Um, I'm a passionate believer that one of the areas where we've failed in development is uh, on um, strengthening institutions and parliamentary strengthening and governance, and in particular, uh helping young women in particular becoming political leaders the evidence in my mind is perfectly clear that standards of governance anti-corruption rule of law is is enhanced immeasurably when there are young women and women who are political leaders and oversight and scrutiny is done a much higher degree and many of the issues and certainly if you've got stronger institutions that have got a reputation which is based and representative of all of all of the society that they represent. In my mind, that's the absolute strongest way of crisis prevention and and conflict prevention, and it's the cheapest way. I mean, there's less than there's less than zero point zero zero one percent of all of this work that's done on capacity building and parliamentary strengthening and, and oversight and the ability of people to ask questions and scrutinise. It's the most effective investment to reduce conflict, and it's always done post-conflict. I'm doing it in Iraq. I'm, I'm doing post-conflict work in Iraq, post dash We're doing it 10 years too late, and all of this comes in, and it's not really effective. And, 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 and if, if the Secretary-General can, can really be the champion-bearer for uh, promoting women in uh, and having the, the norm at the end of this period is that every parliament around the world is gender-balanced parliament then I think that would be a very, very, very strong signal for the Secretary to do. And uh, Can I have 10 seconds on the on the development assistance? It's also very passionate to me because I took through the 0.7% legislation through the House of Lords that enshrined in law. We're the only one to do that, and it is under threat. Uh, I turned down being on the Daily Politics today because to be up against a, uh, an MP on the subject of why are we keeping 0.7% when we have all of these difficulties at home. And we have to be... We have to be continuously being vigilant about it. And again, if the Secretary-General can do one thing, I think he, he should be having every six months bilateral discussions with all of the donor heads of state to really make sure that the case is continuously made about this development assistance works. And it is core to his success. He's been put in place and he has to make sure that those who are the funders around the world His job, his role cannot succeed unless they step up to the plate. And one of the things where I give credit, I'm not just saying it because I'm here in the ODI, but I will say it anyway. The work that you're doing is showing the case for acceleration of aid, because the SDGs will not be met if the acceleration is aid. That is him and his management teams, uh, I think, if it had to be any top priorities, that's what in my mind it should be. The absolute top priority is his rule being clear leadership for the acceleration of development assistance, because none of, none of the, the, the agenda that he wants to proceed will work unless that is, uh, unless that is uh, secured.
1: Uh, well, that's fantastic. I, I think I can hear the clattering of keyboards right now writing the, uh, the memos upstairs for the Secretary General on how to make that case uh, that, that aid works. Uh, so we're about out of time. I'm very sorry we haven't gotten to all of the questions online or in the room. I do understand has, that we have some lunch afterwards. Um, so it's an opportunity. Not everybody can save an opportunity to continue the conversation. So we're going to go just to a final lightning round, although Jeremy kind of already <laughs> stole the idea because, uh, boy, after this conversation, I have to say that I am, I'm, I'm feeling for the guy. Um, <laughs> it, he has a tough... Road ahead of him. Um, I, I think that past uh, his his predecessors have called this among the toughest jobs in the world, and I can imagine it only got harder. Um, so the final question is a, a very quick one minute from each of our panelists on uh, top tips. Um, uh, what is your top tip? for um the secretary general and how he is going to make his tenure successful i'll start with you urvashi and go back and jeremy you can come up with something else pithy when i come to you at the end (laughs) urvashi one minute top tip
4: that's a tough one Top tips. I think I would make two top tips, one at a bigger level, one at a very micro level. I mean, I think the top tip would be around reform, right? And I I don't think the conversation needs to stop or be paralyzed by the UN Security Council reform. I think we can have reform at many levels of the UN, whether it's the executive boards of UNDP and OCHA, or whether it's more institutionalized cooperation between the the Security Council and and the countries building. There's many ways to create a more representative organization. And I think that it would be key to building trust, building legitimacy, and really being an organization which is for the we, the people. A very like micro kind of tip would be, you know, especially since we're talking about humanitarian response and that being the most visible of uh, what the UN does, um, I think it's that in a disaster you have to translate OCHA websites into the language in which you are operating. That would be my micro level tip like for that, how right? you need more legitimacy and representatives on the ground.
1: That's good specific, and specific, and I really like this idea that you talked about before of the democratic deficit and the representation at multiple levels of the UN. Uh, Achim, top tip.
3: Well, knowing Antonio, I, I feel restrained and constrained to give him tips, but knowing him, I think one of the things that um, I have great hope he will be able to develop to the maximum is to be a voice a voice in a world that is going to be in a very difficult period of disruption, um, failure, the temptation to disregard the rule of law, and the principles that define our ability to work together as an international community. And I think Antonio Guterres' capacity to be that principled voice is actually the most powerful tool that he has as a Secretary General that in turn also legitimizes the UN taking positions that are maybe not always in line with what national debates or national leaders' positions are. So that's the one part that I think is critical, and I think he is a gifted person, having lived through some very tough times himself, to be able to articulate that with all the credibility that he brings as a person, but also then, I think, be given and seek the mandate for deep reform in the system and I think he has already put in place some of those uh, signals. Now a lot will depend on whether the world is willing to stand behind mm. him in that, and not focus on the parochial uh, agendas but rather on empowering a Secretary General to lead the UN into its next era of being, what everybody here has said this morning, the only place to which we can turn where differences are actually the rationale of why we created the institution. <laughs>
1: That's that's beautiful, and and uh, I think this idea that you talked about about
3: the legitimacy
1: of the United Nations and the need for such voices is is powerful.
5: Yeah.
1: Top tip.
4: Top tip.
5: Okay, um, <clears throat> go back to an earlier point I was you don't making. Don't
1: have to repeat the Ocho one. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I mean, and I'm with you on that <laughs> one.
5: Um, <clears> the <throat> importance of language. Yes. Um, no, but I guess what I would say to Mr. Guterres is look for your allies in unconventional places, and those could be political allies, fun- funding or financial allies, or operational allies. And where you find them, build them up, build coalition coalitions around them to make them strong. Done. Wow, good. Yeah, you win
1: the minute prize. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> don't blow, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, final
2: word. Uh, I was just reflecting. I've been probably. Uh, depressing myself along but it's, it's also worth remembering that the UN is I think it's the biggest that it's ever been it's got this most there are the most functioning democracies around the world we've got the youngest generation in the world they're the most global they're able to communicate they're the most outward looking in many respects it's the most progressive generation that humanity's ever had um, and I think that they are looking for someone I mentioned before the bully pulpit. They are looking for someone to use the bully pulpit in the Theodore Roosevelt, not a Trump way. To be bully or let, we can do this. So he should be the optimist general. And it (laughs) should be, he should be the person who's always the optimist. I'm not presumptuous enough to give any tips, but in my limited political career, the the time when I've been most down and I've been when I was a member of parliament and and I do now, uh, he can spend no more better time When he's around the world rather than being in having cups of tea with leaders etc is visit primary schools and just if he could put in his diary every month or every couple of weeks visiting a primary school he will leave that and he will his his heart and his head will be replenished with hope Mm. because he'll see children and he'll be constantly reminded as to why he's doing this rather than constant probably grinding negotiations with heads of state he should be more with heads of primary schools and with the children, probably with heads of state.
1: Well, I think that's a beautiful thought to conclude on. Um, And uh, I hope he watches this, because I certainly gained a lot. Maybe he would, too. Um, But please join me in thanking a fantastic panel.